turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, if you're not already there. 1 Peter chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 17 to 22. Now this is a passage that is full of wonderful truth, but it's also a passage that has mystified commentators and Bible teachers, even renowned uh, reformers like Martin Luther. He said of this passage that this is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant. So why would I attempt to even preach this text this morning? Why would I choose it as a one-off sermon? Well, that's, that's a question. Well, why is it so difficult? Well, there, there are many words here that are only used here in the New Testament. There are some theologically difficult statements that on first reading seem incompatible with the rest of what we know in Scripture. And also, certain theologians have had a heyday with this passage and, and taught many strange things. But what we'll see as we go through this is that the main points are clear and powerful. By God's help, we will understand something of this today. The context here in this passage is Peter's encouragement to believers who suffer for righteousness' sake. He encourages them to be righteous, to abstain from evil, to not be like the world, but to be different as God's holy chosen people in this world to be submissive in every sphere of life. And even when they encounter suffering, affliction, and persecution, they were not to take vengeance, but to put their trust in God, because even this suffering is somehow for their good. We see three parts to these verses here. Number one, Christ's victorious suffering in verses 17 to 18. Number two, Christ's victorious proclamation in 19 to 20a, and then our victorious salvation in 20b to 22. Number one, Christ's victorious suffering. We see this in verses 17 to 18. Here, Peter argues that it is better to suffer for righteousness' sake, if it is God's will, than for evil. This is what he says in verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. He makes similar statements to this in the rest of the book. In chapter 2, verse 20, for instance, he says, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. In chapter 4, verses 14 to 15, he says this, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Peter tells us that it's better to suffer for righteousness sake than for evil. That is repeated. That is Obvious. It is good and God glorifying to suffer for doing right. But we know it's very non God glorifying when, uh, 
Christians suffer for doing wrong, or even professing Christians suffer for doing wrong. Just this year, there was a pastor in Ontario, Bruxy Cavey, arrested for immoral conduct. That is obviously not God-glorifying. It's not a good witness. Think of men like Arter Pulowski in our own province who aggravated police, even though he was obeying God by opening his church for worship. This attitude was very non-God-glorifying. But we see in other parts of the world where Christians are being persecuted, like the North Koreans who are often put in labor camps. Or we think perhaps a more common situation in our day, in our time, in our place, might be a, a teenager who is a Christian at school, mocked for their views on creation and morality. But if they bear that well, and they forgive their friends, and they have a Christ-like attitude in it, this is good, Peter says. Our suffering, he says, may be God's will. It is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, if God's will should will it. Sometimes God in his wise eternal purpose may allow us to go through suffering, opposition, or persecution. Now why really is this better or good at all? What consolation is there in our suffering? Why should we endure this patiently? Peter gives us another reason here. Peter points us to Christ himself in verse 18. He points us to the fact that Christ also suffered as a righteous person. Here, there is something similar between us and Jesus Christ. There's something we share with Christ, though, as we'll see, there are some things that we do not share with him at all, and indeed he shares with no one. But he says here, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. We share in the pattern of Christ's suffering. This verse begins literally in the Greek with because also. Peter is giving a reason why it's good for us to suffer for doing good. Because also Christ suffered for doing good. Christ suffered and he was righteous. He was the righteous for the unrighteous. And moreover, what he's arguing here is that Christ's suffering ultimately came to an end. He came to the other side of that affliction. It says here, being put to death in the flesh, Christ died, his suffering culminated in his death upon the cross. But then it says, but made alive in the spirit, which refers here to Jesus' resurrection from the dead. <clears throat> The verb there, made alive, often in the New Testament refers to resurrection. Whether that is the resurrection of Christ, whether it's the resurrection of believers from spiritual death to spiritual life, or their bodily resurrection on the day when Christ returns in glory. And so this is what Peter has in mind here. Christ was made alive, and he was made alive in the Spirit. Sometimes when we read the word spirit, it refers to 
the soul as opposed to the body. It's possible here, but I don't think that's what Peter is saying. Rather, he is using this term spirit in the sense in which Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 15. So we might want to turn there for just a moment. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is talking about the resurrection of believers and how Christ himself was raised from the dead. And so he is the first fruits. It says in verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. He speaks of the reign of Christ until he puts all his enemies under his feet. When Christ returns, all things are put in subjection to him. His people also will be raised up, made alive with him. And he says down in verse 42, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, as, the, as was the man of dust. So also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Here, Paul uses the term spiritual to refer to this heavenly, imperishable form of life that Christ entered into upon his resurrection. He had a glorified body, heavenly, spiritual, and we also will inherit the same thing, a glorified body upon our resurrection. And so this seems to be what Peter here means by being made alive in the spirit, to a spiritual, heavenly, glorified, imperishable existence. We know as Christians that there is suffering in this life for those who would be godly. Like in Pilgrim's Progress, Christian goes down the hill of humiliation at some point in his pilgrimage. The Christian life is downhill before it's uphill. Just as with Christ, he was put to death in the flesh, but then gloriously made alive in the spirit by his resurrection from the dead. And so what Peter is saying here is that there is victory after suffering. There is triumph. There is glory. There is honor after even this affliction, this suffering that we may have to go to. Just as Christ did. He suffered, but then he was made alive in the spirit. So that is what we share with Christ here. But we also need to note there are things here that are unique to Christ and his suffering. The disciples of Jesus once said to him that we can drink your cup. But he said to them, you don't know what you're saying. Christ had a cup to drink, a cup of 
wrath to bear for the sins of many. And no one else could drink that cup. We do share a cup of suffering, but not this cup that we read of here. It says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. It says here that he suffered for sins. He was put to death. He suffered in this way as an atoning sacrifice for sins. He was, as John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Our sin is lawlessness, the breaking of God's law. And every law has a penalty. It has a punishment. When broken, Christ bore the penalty by suffering physically and spiritually upon the cross. His suffering was for sins that believers had committed. It says here, it was the righteous for the unrighteous. That is that Christ's sacrifice was vicarious. It was for us. It was instead of us. Christ was out of place at the cross. It was very unfitting for Jesus to be there between two criminals, shamed and punished, because he himself was a righteous man. He did not deserve death. Hebrews tells us that he was holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. He was completely perfect. He fulfilled all righteousness. He obeyed his father. He obeyed the law. He came under it and perfectly fulfilled it for our sake. But he was put there in the place of the unrighteous. He was not there for his own crimes, but ours. It would have been fitting for us to be there. Have you ever thought of that? That the cross is actually a place that makes sense for you and I, but not for Jesus Christ. But he went there willingly, the, the righteous for the unrighteous in our place, just for the unjust, the innocent for the guilty, the holy for the unholy, God for the ungodly. Second Corinthians 5.21 tells us that it was him who knew no sin that became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know that man Barabbas speaks of before the crucifixion. There was a custom in that time where they would release one prisoner a year at Passover. I don't know who came up with that custom. It seems a very strange and dangerous thing. But anyway, that's the way they, they handled things. And Pilate, seeing that Jesus was innocent, he gave the Jews a way out. Would you... Would you rather have Jesus freed or, or this man Barabbas over here who, who is a wicked man, who's an insurrectionist, who's a rebel, who's violent? Of course, they, they chose Barabbas. They cried out, Barabbas, give Barabbas to us. But that Jesus, crucify him, crucify him. Now that is a picture of what's happened to us as believers in Jesus Christ. Christ has gone to the cross and we have been released. We have been freed, though we are unrighteous. It says here that Christ suffered once for sins. 
That is, once and for all. When someone completes the building of a house, they do not tear it down and build it again, but rather they go in and enjoy it. And Christ's work is like that. It's done. It's finished. Never to be repeated. Now we simply enter in and enjoy the effects of it. It was once for all. It was single. It was final. It was unrepeatable. Hebrews 9, 26 to 27 would tell us that the Old Testament priests made sacrifices continually, repeating these offerings over and over, which could never forgive sins. But Christ made this once for all offering when he brought his own blood to heaven, when he died upon the cross, shedding his blood for our sins. His suffering then was over and our slavery is over through that once for all sacrifice. It says here also the purpose of this work was that he might bring us to God. That he might bring us to God. The purpose of Christ's work upon the cross was not simply to forgive you of your sins. Sin was a barrier between you and God. Sin was what needed to be dealt with in order to reconcile you to God. By our sins, we set up a fortress against God. We, we make ourselves his enemies by rebelling against him and his law. We fire our puny arrows at heaven and they all fall short. But he has made our enemy by our sins. And he must punish. He must come in justice and in wrath. But Christ came to tear down that fortress, to remove the barrier between us and God by forgiving our sins upon the cross. And so we can be reconciled. There is peace made between us and God through Jesus Christ. And so we have fellowship with our creator again. The most tragic thing lost in the fall and the most treasured thing obtained in the gospel is fellowship with God. He is truly the end and the goal of everything. From him and through him and to him are all things. And so also with our salvation, it is to him that we might be with him, that we might fellowship with him and enjoy his presence forever. This is the unique and unrepeatable work of Christ. And yet Peter's point here is, that we bear similarity to Christ when we suffer for a time temporarily in this life, but then we are made alive like him in resurrected glory forever. There is suffering, but there is victory. Christ's suffering was victorious, and so also will our suffering be victorious. And so continuing with this theme of Victory. I believe what Peter goes on to speak about here is a victorious proclamation in verses 19 to 20a. And now this is where interpretation of this passage gets quite difficult. There are three main views here of what is being spoken of, and many commentators like Martin Luther <laughs> throw up their hands at this point and say, I'm not completely sure what Peter is talking about. But I think we can get 
at least the gist of what's going on here. If we remember the context of this passage and also good rules of interpretation like interpreting scripture with scripture, interpreting unclear scriptures with clear scriptures and not making too much out of what's totally unclear to us. So there are three views here. The first is the descent view. This is that what's being spoken of here is Christ's descent into hell to make a proclamation of victory over sinners potentially, but especially fallen angels. It says here, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. This view takes made alive in the spirit in verse 18 differently than I just took it. They take this to refer to the fact that Jesus' spirit continued after he was put to death in the flesh, in the body. So his spirit continues like like we all do when we die, our spirits go to one of two places. But they take it to mean here that he went and proclaimed, meaning that Jesus' spirit went to hell and proclaimed victory over fallen angels, spirits in prison. Now this view is actually held by a number of good Christians throughout history and even in this present day. They tie it in with other texts like Ephesians 4, 8 to 10, which speaks of Christ descending and then ascending, leading a host of captives. Some include in this idea the view that Old Testament saints were in a certain holding place. It was paradise. It was Abraham's bosom. But it was in this common place of the dead called Sheol. And so Christ led captives up to heaven at that point. Some use Colossians 2.15 also in this vein. That Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities. Referring to spiritual powers. And that was done in this time between the death and the resurrection of Christ. Some have taken this view to extremes which are totally unorthodox and and heretical, saying that Christ suffered in hell after his death, which runs against what we know from scripture. Scripture, Christ's work was perfected upon the cross as he died. He did not have to go to hell afterward and suffer more there. And some like Augustine have said in the past that this view seems to open the door to a kind of second chance theology. And indeed in Catholic theology, They made much of this idea and embellished it and focused upon the intermediate state to a point where they came up with the doctrine of purgatory and this sort of second way of being saved even after you die. This is error. Now, the basic view here, without all those errors, is possible, though the extremes of it are to be avoided. I'm not there yet. I'm not there with with that view. There's a second view, is that this is speaking of Noah preaching at the time of the flood. This view takes made alive in the spirit to refer to the Holy Spirit. So made alive by the spirit. That's a possible way to translate that. And then verse 19 would say, by which he went and proclaimed to the spirits 
in prison. And so this is what's in view here is Christ by the Holy Spirit preaching through Noah as an inspired prophet proclaiming judgment to fallen angels or to rebellious sinners in that day who are now in prison, the final prison, hell. Second Peter 2.5 does say that Noah was a herald of righteousness. That's a possible idea. Even a great commentator like Matthew Henry takes this view. But we never really get any explanation of that in the rest of Scripture, to my knowledge. And I think it is unlikely, a bit of a strange way to use the grammar and the words here. Rather, Jesus seems to be the one preaching here. And I'm not convinced it is saying Jesus preached by the Spirit there. I'm not sure about that interpretation. Friends, I'm running through these views just to, to help you understand how we come to Scripture. How we might wrestle with even the hard things and come to hopefully an understanding that makes sense with the rest of Scripture. And if you disagree with my view here, that's okay. Because these are relatively unclear things. But the third view, and my view currently here, is a post-resurrection proclamation view. As I mentioned earlier, I believe the phrase made alive in the spirit here refers to Jesus' resurrection to a glorified state. And then what it means by in which he went means it was in this state It was in this glorified state, this resurrected state, that Christ went. And where did he go? Where did he go? He went somewhere, obviously. Well, I believe the context here actually gives us the answer. Because down in verse 22, it says, Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now that word gone in verse 22 is the exact same word in verse 19, went. Okay, it's translated different, went or gone, but it's the exact same verb, the exact same tense, exact same form. And so I believe this gives us The answer to what's being spoken of here. Christ's ascension into heaven after his resurrection. He was made alive in the spirit in which he went. He went up. He went into heaven. He went to glory. And he proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now what does that mean? He proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Friends, there there is clue here because it goes on to talk about these spirits. It says in verse 20, they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Now back in Genesis 6 verse 1, and I, I know this is a debated thing as well, but I believe what's spoken of there are evil spirits fallen angels who came down to earth and committed immorality on the earth. These are the spirits in view. They did not obey God. They disobeyed. They left their proper dwelling place 
and they are now judged by God in prison. The rest of the New Testament speaks of this, or seems to speak of it, in two books. Jude, verse 6, says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4 says the same thing. God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. These fallen angels are singled out in scripture as very notoriously wicked enemies of God who have been judged, committed to a sort of spiritual prison, which we may indeed call hell. Now, Christ is said to be made alive in the spirit in which he went, went into heaven and proclaimed to these spirits in prison. And I believe what's in view here is that the resurrection and ascension of Christ was a proclamation of God's victory over all of his enemies, over all spiritual evil, including these spirits in prison who are notoriously wicked. Again, it repeats this idea in verse 22. He's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels authorities and powers having been subjected to him often the words authorities and powers in the new testament refer to spiritual forces of evil and so these fallen angels and and authorities and powers have been subjected to christ they've been put under his feet as it were by his victorious death and resurrection this is a triumphant work And this fits in with the context and with the rest of Scripture as Peter is talking about our victory. Just as Christ died but was raised victorious, so we also will be. This victory was prophesied of in the Old Testament. In Psalm chapter 110, in the first couple verses, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is Christ's resurrection and ascension to glory, where he now reigns, making enemies crushed beneath his feet. There's a passage like Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, where the Son of Man comes up to the Ancient of Days. It says in verse 13 to 14, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given (coughs) dominion and glory and a kingdom. (coughs) Excuse me. That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Likewise in Romans chapter 1. It speaks of a proclamation. It says in verse 2. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures. Concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. 
and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Christ's resurrection and ascension was a proclamation of God's victory over all evil, over spiritual evil, as he disarms Satan, destroys his work by dealing with our sins upon the cross and justifying us by his resurrection. Death can no longer hold us. The slavery to sin can no longer hold us. Sin's condemnation no longer holds sway over us. And these are all of Satan and his demons' weapons. And so Christ is victorious in this moment when he raises himself from the dead. Are you with me? That's my best attempt at interpreting this difficult text. Again, if you disagree, that's okay. And if you're confused, that's okay. Just at least understand this, friends. Christ is victorious. That is Peter's main point here. And though we may suffer, there is victory in store for us too as believers in him. Now, having recalled something of the disobedience in the time of Noah, Peter now uses the history of Noah and the flood to keep encouraging his readers with their victorious salvation. So this is our third point here, our victorious salvation in verses 20b to 22. Peter points us back here to the days of Noah. And in speaking of these spirits who were doing their work at the time of Noah, he now turns to the ark. He says, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, literally there, God's forbearance patiently waited in those days. God was patient before the flood. He was enduring human wickedness for hundreds of years since the fall. But there came a time when the dam of God's judgment broke and he poured forth this flood in his wrath, destroying everyone on earth with this worldwide flood. We know that he is a God of patience, but there is a time when he must judge wickedness. Just like this, there is another day coming when Christ will return to judge the world in righteousness and it will come like that flood, just as suddenly just as shockingly as the flood in that generation. But in that day also, God had favor upon one man and his family, whom he told to build an ark so that he might be saved from that flood. See this here described. While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. God graciously made a covenant with Noah to preserve his family. And so by his grace, they were rescued from the flood. There were only eight persons out of all the people on the earth in those days. Just as today, there are few saved. Few are those who find the way of life. The way is narrow. The way is hard that leads to life. But broad is the road to destruction. There were just a few, just eight people. Noah, his wife, his sons, and his sons' wives. But it says here that they were brought safely through water. And the word there, brought safely, can mean to be saved. It's the word 
diasozo, which contains this main verb used in the New Testament for salvation, sozo. But it's a saving through. Dia means through. And it's, so it's, it's saving through water. They were brought safely out of it. Just as you might say someone was saved through fire if they were carried out of a burning building by a firefighter. They were saved through water. And of course, we see many other instances like this in the Old Testament. There are many other instances of this in the Old Testament. God saving through water. We think of the exodus of Israel as they crossed the Red Sea. God parted the waters for them and they passed through on dry land. They were brought safely through that water. In the time of Joshua, we saw in Joshua chapter 3 and 4, the people were brought miraculously through the Jordan. The Jordan threatened to sweep them away, but God made the water stand up and heap miles upstream so that they could pass through onto dry ground. Then when we see in the New Testament more water symbolism, there is the water of baptism, John baptizing at the Jordan as people repented and confessed their sins in light of the coming of the Messiah. And then Jesus, when he came, was also baptized to fulfill all righteousness. And he himself and his disciples baptized people. But then the Christian church in Acts 2 was filled with his spirit. And Peter made that proclamation, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And this is what Peter has in view, is the connection between water in the Old Testament and this water at the time of the flood and this connection between it and baptism. Now, verse 21 is also a very difficult statement for us, isn't it? Baptism, it says, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> now, those of you who are, who are like me, Protestant, uh, Evangelical, Baptist, you would never go up and say this to someone, would you? Baptism saves you. We, we just would not say that. And so when we come across it in Scripture, it seems problematic to us what is being said here we, we would never phrase things like this so so why does Peter why do we find that difficult well because we know that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone we know that the outward ritual of baptism saves no one that you can be baptized and yet be lost to know nothing of the grace of God and ultimately die in your sins and go to everlasting destruction. Many have been baptized and yet have walked away from the Lord. We know we're not saved by an outward ritual, but by the finished work of Jesus Christ. 
and an inner work of God's spirit as he raises us to spiritual life through faith in Jesus Christ. That is crystal clear in scripture. There's no muddy muddy water there. We're not left in the dark as to how we are saved. So we know when we come to this passage and it says baptism saves you, it doesn't mean what it seems to mean on a superficial reading. And so we dig deeper. What is Peter actually saying here? And why can he say something like this? This cannot be teaching baptismal regeneration. That is heretical. Baptism does not automatically save somebody. So what does he mean? Well, two things help guide us here. First of all, the only reason that Peter can say something like this is because of the way that baptism was practiced in the first century and also the way it should be practiced today. Baptism in the New Testament was administered at the time someone was saved. Baptism was part of the conversion event. We call it when someone's saved as they're they're converted. They come to repentance and faith in Christ. It's their response to the gospel. There's an inner work of regeneration And there's an outer thing called conversion, that as the Spirit makes us alive, we reach out to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. But in the New Testament, that was always accompanied right after with baptism. You hear the gospel, you believe in Christ, you are baptized. And you can look back at that then as the time of your salvation your conversion. And so there are a number of verses in the New Testament where baptism is so closely linked in with the rest of conversion that it seems that saving power is attributed to it. Flip with me to a few scriptures. Acts chapter 2, verse 38, which I've already quoted to you a couple of times. Acts 2, Verse 38. In verse 37, the the people, the crowd that Peter was preaching to were cut to the heart. They were convicted of their sins. And they wanted to know what they should do to be saved. What does Peter say to him? Repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. For the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the, the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. It says then in verse 41, those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. What what is the apostle's direction to people who want to be saved? Repent and be baptized. We know that if someone comes in true repentance, they are coming in true faith to Jesus Christ. And that is what forgives our sins. And God grants us the gift of the Holy Spirit. But baptism is right in there with it. Okay, And it's a command for all disciples of Jesus Christ. 
Look at Acts chapter 22, verse 16. This is Paul recounting his testimony, how he was converted to Christ on the road of Damascus. And then he met a disciple named Ananias. And Ananias told him, it says in verse 16, And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So again, baptism is right in there in the conversion event. We know that our sins are washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ, by the forgiveness we receive through his atonement. But baptism is a symbol of that washing away of sins. As we call upon the name of God to be saved, he washes our sins away from us and we are baptized. This is always the way that baptism is spoken of in the New Testament. It's part of the conversion event. It's the capstone of conversion. Like when someone wins a race and they're immediately given a ribbon. Or when you go through the process of becoming a a Costco member and you get your card with your picture on it. It's a symbol outwardly of what is happening inwardly. It stamps your faith with a public sign. And so Peter here can point to it as representative of our salvation. That's why he can say baptism now saves you. Now he also, the second thing that helps us here is that he he himself qualifies his statement by a contrast. He qualifies his statement here. He says baptism which corresponds to this now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He tells us what he's not saying first. He says, not as a removal of dirt from the body. That is, it's not just a matter of getting in a tank and getting washed down, getting the dirt washed off of your body that saves you. It's it's not the outward ritual. It's not something automatic or magic years ago there was uh carrie underwood put out that strange song something in the water talking about baptism and there was kind of this weird baptism regeneration theology that's why you don't listen to country music by the way but but (laughs) sorry to those who actually like it um it's there's not something in the water it's not magic like that rather we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ, by his grace, by his work on the cross. It's not just a matter of an outward physical washing, Peter says. But what is he saying here? He says, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Really, we see here the instrument instrument of salvation, and also the cause of our salvation. We see the instrument of our salvation in this statement as an appeal to God for a good conscience. What Peter means by that is when when we see that our conscience is guilty before God, when we see that it's full of sin and full of guilt, 
That's a bad conscience. That's an evil conscience, as the writer to the Hebrews would call it. But when we see that, we cry out by God's grace. We appeal to God for a good conscience. In other words, we come by faith to Jesus Christ, crying out for salvation. We cry out that God would cleanse us from our sin, making our conscience good and clear again. Our sins, when we recognize truly who we are before a holy God, are like a burden on our back. It's like when you have an inbox full of unread emails, and they're just the number on the little app there is just increasing. Maybe some of you have been in that situation. There's a thousand emails now that you haven't opened. Unread mail. You haven't read your mail from God for a while. You haven't really looked at your sin and seen your guilt. But now, all of a sudden, by the Spirit's illumination, your eyes are opened. The mail is opened to you. You see God's message to you that you are a sinner, that your conscience is guilty. And now you have to face it, and you cry out. You see that the flood waters of God's wrath are about to overwhelm you. You see God's judgment coming. You see that there's no righteous man around you. There, certainly you yourself are not righteous. You're a sinner. And so you look to this one man, Jesus Christ, the truly righteous one who suffered for sinners, and he's your ark. He's your ark to bring you safely through the flood of God's wrath. And at that time, God saves you through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Notice here that Peter says it is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's through his completed work that he died, he paid the penalty in full for your sins, he was buried, and he was raised, declared in power to be the Son of God, to be the Savior who can wash away your sins. And he does, and you're rescued, you're saved through that spirit baptism as the Spirit unites you to Jesus Christ and all of his benefits. And so, friends, just as Christ was made alive in the Spirit, and ascended on high, we are made alive in him. And we ascend even to heavenly places as we trust in Jesus Christ, as we appeal to God for a good conscience through his resurrection. See, what Peter is telling us here is not some kind of baptismal regeneration theology. It's the furthest thing from it. It's biblical salvation that we call out to God for salvation. And he saves us through the work of Jesus Christ. Friends, given the encouragement of this passage from Christ's victorious work on the cross and our salvation through him, I want to close with just two applications. First of all, glory in the vicarious work of Christ. Glory in the work that Christ alone could accomplish, that he suffered once for sins, because sin was your greatest problem. And it kept you from the one 
you now love more than anything. You have been brought to God by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, your Savior, who came in the flesh to die in the flesh for your sinful soul. He gave his righteous life. He bore your sins. He buried your sins with him. And he did this once and for all. You can never do anything else to be pardoned. It has been done already. As Horatius Bonner writes, it's not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Friends, has Christ done this for you? Then glory in that work he has done for you. And if you are not yet reconciled to God here, I appeal to you, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Rise and be baptized, washing away your sins, calling upon the name of the Lord. Trust in Jesus Christ alone to save you. Call upon his name and he alone will bring you safely out of the flood waters of God's wrath which are coming upon this world. Friend, turn to Jesus Christ and be saved. And friends, Christians, in all your sufferings, remember to look to your Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ has gone before us on the gravel road of affliction, onto the pavement of heaven. This life may be bumpy for us. If we truly stand up for Jesus Christ, we will be maligned, but this is the best path. It is a good path. It is better than all alternatives because it is ultimately the path of glory. Christ suffered, but he is now victorious. He was put to death in the flesh, but now he is made alive in the spirit, seated above all rule and authority, and we will go with him there. Friends, suffer for Jesus Christ because there is eternal glory waiting for you. Though the devil and the world and your own flesh against you fight you in this life, those enemies will all be put to shame, put under Jesus' feet, done away with once and for all, committed to prison forever, just like those notorious fallen angels. Christ is your victory. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you, God, for your victorious work, suffering vicariously for us on the cross and rising triumphantly to heaven. God, we thank you that it's through this that we can come to you and appeal to you and receive a clean conscience. Lord, I pray for those who are here who have not yet done that, that you would draw them by your spirit, that they would trust in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. And Lord, may you encourage us all as saints as we go through things in this life, troubles, trials. Lord, may we have your peace that you give to us because you have overcome the world. We pray in Jesus' name.